0: Seven long days, there was ceaseless artillery fire which rose ever more frequently to the intensity of drum fire. The torture and the fatigue, not to mention the strain on the nerves, were indescribable. There was just one single heartfelt prayer on our lips. "O God, free us from this ordeal. Give us release through battle. Grant us victory. Lord God, just let them come. Unteroffizier Friedrich Hinkel, Reserve Infantry Regiment 99, Psalm 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast episode 4. Somme, the Stahlhelm, the Cascadrion, and the Tin Hat, Part 1. This episode is dedicated to the memory of United States Navy Petty Officer Second Class Andrew J. Clement. Rest easy, my friend. You have left us far too soon. On June 24th, 1916, just as the day was coloring itself summer blue, 3,000 Allied guns opened up on the German lines on the Somme. As the first shells howled their way down to earth, German soldiers threw themselves into their dugouts or whatever other shelter they could find. The bombardment was frightfully loud. And as the Germans caught their breath in their dugouts, 12 meters underground, the earth around them rumbled and rolled like a ship in a storm. Heavy shell impacts thudded strongly into the ground above the huddling men and whatever light might be available in the dugouts, one would be able to see the men's faces tighten as dirt loosed itself from the roof with these impacts. Above ground, Within minutes, a dust cloud tens of meters high obscured the German front-line trenches from view. From Gomcourt to Maricourt, 1,500 British guns pounded away at the enemy lines. From Maricourt to Cholm, 1,500 French guns did the same. The bombardment was of such a magnitude that in short order it could be heard in London. This massive unleashing of destructive firepower was the unmistakable sign that Britain's and France's industrial might were now fully mobilized for the war effort. The home front was now chained to the battlefront, as the economy was now focused on the war. Even if soldiers on leave complained that civilians acted as if they knew nothing of the war, All citizens of the warring nations now had their fates tied to that of the great bloodletting. From Gomcourt to Chong, in the British and French lines and in the areas just behind them, 55,000 infantrymen settled in for the four or five day wait set by the preparatory bombardment. Behind them were another 100,000 infantrymen these being the follow-on forces once the first waves seized the Allies' initial objectives that were the German first and second positions. To clarify from our last episode, both the British and French were to capture the first and second positions of the defending Germans. The difference would be that the French army, having painfully learned its lessons, was now fully stocked with the heavy artillery it needed to crush the Bosch trench lines and bury its defenders in their deep dugouts. The British Army, well, they didn't have what they needed to get the job done. So it's time we talk about the soldiers who are going to be fighting this battle. And I think we should begin with someone we haven't really discussed yet. The German soldier... On the Somme front. In June of 1916, most of the German soldiers on the Somme front had been stationed there since the front lines froze late in 1914. These men, now huddling in their dugouts or in the fortified villages behind the trench lines as thousands upon thousands of shells pounded, scooped, and splattered the earth above and around them, belonged to the German Second Army. In command of the Zweite Armee was General Fritz von Behlow. We don't know much about him, as he died of illness just days after the war ended in November 1918. He left nothing that could be put into a biography or a memoir. William Philpott's Bloody Victory describes him as a quote, shadowy presence end quote, who quote, has not left much of a mark on history. End quote. Hombélov was promoted to Second Army's command after doing a bang-up job beating on the Russians on the Eastern Front. The son of an old Prussian military family, he was seen as a level-headed, tough, and capable commander. Hombélov and the men of his Second Army knew an offensive was coming. After Verdun had been started, it was obvious the Allies would strike back somewhere. From spring on, as the British and French amassed more and more men, shells, and other equipment behind the lines, while increasing aerial observation through aircraft and balloons, it was obvious the hammer blow would be coming in this area. Imperial German Army Commander General Erich von Falkenhayn believed the Somme buildup was a diversion. Seriously? Seriously? He believed the real attack would be further north in the Aas area. Von Falkenhayn believed it so much that when Von Beylov, in late May and early June twice and very prudently asked for permission to launch a 20-kilometer-wide preemptive attack to disrupt Allied plans, Von Falkenhayn refused. So the men of the German Second Army didn't just sit down and say, well, okay, we tried. The Frunschwein, or the more locally based name, the Somkämpfer, or Som Warrior, did not plan on sitting around and dying without an apocalyptic fight. By 1916, the German army was probably the best one of all the great war combatants in the field. It was by no means an unbeatable force. But the German soldier and his general showed such military aptitude that even if the Germans weren't winning, well, they weren't really losing either. Drawing on a tradition and obligation of military service starting at a young age, the German soldier had years of training in a way that his French, British, and Belgian counterparts just did not. With 18 months into the war and casualties running into the millions, The German Reich was starting to cull ever more of the younger, older, and less fit men for the army to make up losses. But at this point in 1916, it was a thoroughly professional force, arguably at the top of its game. The German soldier, led by professional NCOs and young, resourceful junior officers, was a highly motivated and determined fighter. He also had upper echelon leaders who sought to continuously learn best practices from past experiences. And then, here's the really innovative part, spread those lessons learned in memos that were sent to every other major command in the army. The German army wasn't perfect. As an aside, part of the reason for the defeat at the Marne in 1914 was because the commanders of the German first and second armies back then refused to let each other know their whereabouts. But for the most part, it had its collective scheisse together. An example of this cross-leveling of information amongst the army and corps commands was the development of artillery defensive fire zones as a result of the Artois and Champagne battles in 1915. These defensive fire zones were sectors of the front line to be covered by assigned gun batteries. These batteries would unleash absolute hell on their sector if called on to do so by the defending infantry. With this strategy, infantry and artillery coordination improved that much more to the benefit of a tighter and faster acting defense. This may seem like old news today, but in the early days of modern warfare, the dissemination of lessons learned and the development of infantry artillery coordination was at the forefront military thinking. These defensive fire zones will be in our future. As I also said before, the German soldier, when he wasn't manning the front lines or drilling, he was digging. And let's not forget that on the front line, he was digging in on most of the high ground. With lessons learned from the battles in other sectors, the trench lines became ever more complex and interconnected. As the 1915 battles were fought, the Germans took to developing what they called positions, sets of three separate trench lines separated by one to 200 meters. These positions, with the first being the one closest to the enemy, were then separated by one to 2,000 meters. In front of every trench, there were one or more belts of barbed wire at least 30 meters thick. And in some places, it was even thicker. At Comcor, for example, it was laid 50 meters thick. As the shells hit the German lines on the Somme on June 24th, they blasted and plowed the first and second positions. Construction had begun on a third position, so another set of three trenches, 2,000 meters behind that second German position. These position systems were also the result of lessons learned and after operations memos disseminated from the top down. Jack Sheldon's The German Army on the Somme highlights one of these reports given to the German 12th Infantry Division, then manning the frontline trenches. The detail provided on how the position should be created and managed is meticulous, and you need to hear it to believe it. Salient points of the report are as follows, quote, the battles around Arras have shown us that a well-constructed position, even one which has been subject to preparatory fire lasting for days, including the heaviest possible drum fire, can be held against repeated assaults, provided that the garrison remains absolutely calm and is led by energetic officers of iron will who would prefer to die in the defensive line with their men rather than yield. The first position must comprise three lines of trenches separated by about 100 to 150 meters. The main essential is to have a broad, strongly constructed obstacle separated into several distinct rows to the front. Such obstacles have withstood the very Heaviest enemy artillery fire. Swiftly constructed, weak obstacles which lack depth and hasty obstacles are, on the other hand, totally worthless. All enemy infantry attacks wither away before well-made obstacles, even if the distance from the start line is very close. Each trench of the first position must be equally strong and thoroughly prepared for defense. This means that all three require a wire obstacle and each must be stocked with ammunition for the close quarter battle, rifle ammunition, hand grenades, signal flares, etc. They must also have digging implements, all types of defense stores, rations, and water. It is not a good idea to keep all these stocks in the very front line they must be distributed in all three trenches. Special attention is to be paid to constant resupply, especially of grenades. The first trench must be so well equipped with bulletproof observation and listening posts that a strong enemy attack can be beaten off, even when casualties have been taken. An overlarge garrison simply invites heavy casualties. The strength in which the second and third trenches can be held depends on the number of troops available. Regimental and brigade reserves must be able to reach these places in a timely manner. Communication trenches must not be dug at right angles to the main trenches. They must zigzag, or at least be equipped with short saps left and right. This means that the enemy who prefers to attack at the junction points of the main trenches and these communication trenches is immediately confronted by another line of resistance. Prepared, hasty obstacles designed to block the trenches are to be held ready at all necessary places. Collocation of infantry regimental commanders and artillery group commanders has proved to be very effective. The first prerequisite for the commander to be able to influence the battle is to maintain communication to all subordinate forces. In the frontline trenches, voice tubes have proved to be best, followed by bells and gongs. Further to the rear, there must be constant efforts to maintain telephone links. The most resistant means has proved to be armored cable laid 2 to 3 meters deep. However, this takes a long time to lay and it is difficult to repair. In many places, in particular those which are not subject to long periods of drum fire, lightweight cable laid above ground has proved to be effective because it is easily repairable. All vital links must, in any case, be laid in triplicate. It is impossible to counter the fact that even the best link will fail during heavy fire. So stout-hearted men must be held in readiness to act as runners. Without them, the commander can exert no influence over the course of the battle. Links to neighbors, artillery, and infantry must not fail. They were always good to 1st Bavarian Reserve Corps, but often failed with the left-hand division of 4th Army Corps. Even when the other side makes mistakes, our side must constantly strive to rebuild the link. Do not select paths which are under fire, even if this means diversions. Make immediate use of neighbors who still have communications for relay purposes. If the artillery has ranged in its defensive fire zones accurately and has exercised the use of alarm signals carefully with the infantry. It is often the case that enemy infantry attacks can be nipped in the bud, especially when it has been possible to fire on concentrations of troops in the enemy trenches. Our artillery achieved this brilliantly at Arras. Bids have been submitted to raise the first-line ammunition stocks of the field artillery batteries to 1,500 rounds. Nevertheless, it must be impressed on the field artillery that it must be sparing in its use of ammunition. All other individual lessons learned relate to the local conditions, which must always be taken into account as swiftly as possible. Quote. Trench lines were drawn out and planned by engineers. The digging of deep dugouts was also very strictly managed. That stereotyped Prussian attention to detail was in full effect here, and it showed in other reports written after tough trench inspections. More heavily north of the river than to the south, the trenches featured deep dugouts that sheltered the German soldiers. These weren't just holes in the ground. Each dugout had at least two and some had three entrances to prevent death in the very possible likelihood of a cave-in. A lot of these dugouts had a main gallery from which other rooms branched off, some going deeper than the general depth of 10 to 15 meters at which they could generally be found. Many dugouts had had electricity run up from the villages since the end of 1914, as well as beds, tables, chairs, and even wooden paneling also looted from the same villages. These were underground barracks, really, and as the shells came down now, they held dozens or hundreds of men along with their arsenals, ammunition, and emergency rations. Above ground, any villages on or near the front line had been turned into fortresses. Cellars had been reinforced with concrete and turned into mutually supportive machine gun nests. In some houses, the Germans had built up bunkers inside. Even if the artillery bombardment smashed the house walls away, the Allies would find a nasty blockhouse awaiting them. So, if the meticulously dug trenches, with their thick belts of barbed wire out front, the covered concrete machine gun nests and the deep dugouts to house the men, along with the fortified villages, weren't enough. There were also the redoubts. A redoubt is also sometimes called a strong point. It is a defensive position that helps strengthen a front line's defensive capabilities by acting as an earthworks fortress. There were several of these redoubts on the Somme front, and their names will start popping up in our narrative very soon. To give you an idea of them, we'll describe probably the most famous one of them all, the Schwaben Redoubt. The Schwaben Redoubt was a trench fortress, dug in on the high ground between the village of Thiepval and the village of Saint-Pierre-de-Vion to the northwest of Thiepval. It consisted mainly of two parallel trenches, separated by 30 meters. The Kampfgraben, or battle trench, that faced towards the enemy, was about 500 meters long. The parallel trench behind it was shorter, and from the air the whole thing looked like a rough triangle trapezoid with zigzagging trenches spidering across the ground from it. Between the two main trenches, there were 35 traverses where the trench zigged and zagged to make taking a large section very hard and also 17 mined dugouts. A section of the Alvartagraben, Graben belonging to another trench system ran through Schwaben Redoubt and it had another three dugouts inside the complex. The dugouts weren't connected, but it didn't matter. Each dugout held dozens of men, all armed to the teeth and motivated to get at the enemy. As soon as the bombardment lifted, the men would rush up and out to man their trenches or what was left of them. In minutes, the redoubt would be a strongly manned and heavily defended dug-in position. Schwab and Redoubt supported both saint pierre de Vion and Thiepval, and vice versa. Behind Schwaben, other redoubts and the village of Courselet supported it from behind. Get the idea of how these redoubts worked? We just talked about one of these things. So June 25th dawned hot and humid. The Allied bombardment didn't stop. It slackened or halted briefly at times in order to draw the Germans out of their holes in anticipation of an attack, or for British and French troops to launch a lightning trench trade, but it would quickly start up again. The German army now moved to evacuate any remaining civilians in the nearby villages, which were now also coming under heavy fire. Many of these wretched, half-starved people grabbed what they could and trudged away from the shelling under sympathetic but wary German guards. In the forward trenches, men eyed each other as they shook under the barrage. This was going on a day now. Tommy and Franz must be prepping something big indeed. From Maricor to Chon, the bombardment was brutal, especially south of the Somme, where the ground was less accommodating for deep dugouts. The German positions were being flattened by the French artillery. The Germans knew it, too. All of the known dugouts were being mercilessly targeted with heavy, high-explosive shells. Many had already been destroyed, the men inside either being buried alive or asphyxiating when the oxygen ran out in the sealed-off chambers. The French 6th Army wasn't messing around. As we discussed previously, under General Fayol, the Poilous and Tirailleurs. Were applying the lessons learned so expensively in 1915 and more recently in the Verdun meat grinder. They had heavy artillery, they had high explosive shells that did unimaginable damage, and like at Verdun, they would make a desert and call it victory. South of the Somme, the German Second Army was being decimated. At Faye. The 61st DI were the very reservists who defended the Somme back in the chaotic days of 1914. It probably goes without saying they were looking to hand out ass-whoopings. But there we are. We just said it. Next to the 61st DI, headed north, were the 3rd and 2nd DICs, the Division d'Infanterie Coloniale. These were men from France's colonies, mostly drawn from North and West Africa. Maltreated and frequently abused due to racist policies and tendencies of the time, these soldiers typically rose above their poor treatment to prove themselves fighters whom the Germans hated. Senegalese troops were particularly hated for they carried a machete-like knife called Kutkut and these were used as part of trench cleaning duties. 2nd DIC shouldered itself on the Somme. Across the river, from Curlew and all the way up to Maricourt, the men of General Balfourier's 20th Iron Corps waited. The 20th Corps was made up of the 11th and 39th DIs both veteran divisions of many battles, but most recently that of Verdun, these two crack units were rested, replenished, and ready. The French soldiers across from the roaring bombardment were not the blue and red clad men of 1914, the citizens who had become soldiers to defend La Patrie. In 1916, these were men who now wore horizon blue and the casque de They were hardened by 18 months of war and loss on a scale never before thought possible. These grim and drawn men, determined to hold on, had undergone such profound changes at the front that they were now soldiers who happened to be citizens. Those poilus and tirailleurs would not be making wave attacks. French infantry units were evolving into platoon-sized teams of highly specialized riflemen, machine gunners, and bombers, to use the British term for grenade throwers. These platoons now rushed forward, one covering while another moved, as the artillery laid down a creeping barrage that plastered the ground just in front of the infantry. At timed intervals, the artillery would lift and drop its shells forward some 50 or 100 meters, and the infantry teams would come behind it to wipe out any remaining Germans. These evolving infantry and infantry artillery tactics were being perfected at Verdun, and the French would put them to use on the Somme. The French army was battered and bruised, but like the Germans opposite them, in June 1916, this army too was at the top of its game. All right, folks. So we're going to leave it there for now. I'll be following up shortly with part two, where we'll talk about the men of the British Expeditionary Force in 1916 as we prepare to enter the Battle of the Somme. If you have enjoyed the podcast so far, please consider reviewing it on iTunes. The more reviews, the more visible we are on iTunes, and the more discussion we can generate. Also, the podcast is on Twitter. Look us up at at WW1 podcast. I have avoided Twitter for years because I thought that as a grown man, I should not be tweeting. So I remain off the Twitter, but my podcast is on it. That's okay. Anyhow, Twitter is an excellent resource for great information links. In the same way that Facebook is great for seeing all of your friends' very publicly posted political views. Mein God! So, come follow us there. BFWWP tries to put up something every day. We're trying. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please hit me up through the website, www.firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. If you're not into social media, no problem. Email me directly at verdunpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. There is nothing that pleases me more than getting an email from, from listeners out there. So, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Talk to you again soon. Take care.